You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. There's a famous quote from a very worldly novel that says there's only one God and his name is death. And I think that's probably the most succinct statement of the actual theology of our unbelieving culture. If our culture recognizes anything like a God, it's death. Because in our irreverent world, death is alone treated with respect. You know, people throw the names Christ and God and Jesus around as profanity. But people speak in hushed, even reverential tones about death if we dare to speak about it at all. Death is seen as omnipotent. It can take anybody, anytime, no matter who you are. Well, we could put it off for a while, but eventually we've got to pay the piper, right? And when death comes, it's seen as final. It's irreversible. And this view about death drives how many people live. You only live once, they say, usually before they do something very foolish. Many people adopt that attitude we see criticized in the Bible. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Friends, our reverence for death, I think, borders on religious conviction. And so it is an evil, a fearful God that our society acknowledges, that offers no hope, and the prospect only of eternal nothingness. What a bleak perspective. But praise God, in strong contrast to that, is the truth that we find in the Bible. Death is not victorious. Death is not God. Jesus Christ has triumphed over death. And one day, his victory will be total. Death shall be forever destroyed. And the people of God, those who repentantly entrust ourselves to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. We will not be forever vanquished by death. Rather, we will rise from death, triumphing over it in Christ, liberated from its dominion, given glorious resurrection bodies, which shall never die again, living forever in a new creation, free from death's shadow. And that's the hope we're going to discuss this morning as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel. Today we're going to be in chapter... Chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. And this morning we'll see three points. First, unbelievers scoff at the doctrine of resurrection because they do not believe in the power of God or the Word of God. Second, we should believe in the doctrine of resurrection because we believe in the power of God. And third, we should believe in the doctrine of resurrection because we believe in the Word of God. So let's start with our first point, in which we see that unbelievers scoff at the notion of resurrection because they don't believe in God's word or power. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. It's the middle of his final week. He's in the temple, and he's having quite the day. The religious leaders of Judaism have challenged him to an ultimate showdown, a great debate. And as our passage begins, this debate has been going now for a few rounds. 
In round one, Jesus was challenged by the Sanhedrin, the highest ranking body in Judaism. But despite their attempts to trip Jesus up, the Sanhedrin's representatives were publicly exposed by Jesus as being unrepentant, insincere frauds who were God's enemies. And having been defeated, the Sanhedrin's representatives slink away. Round one to Jesus. Last week we saw round two. The Pharisees, an ultra-nationalistic group, teamed up with the Herodians who were pro-Roman. And you might remember that they worked together to ask Jesus a tricky question, this time about taxes, expecting that whatever Jesus said, he would make himself liable to a criminal charge that could get him the death penalty. We said last week, you can't play games with God and win. And again, Jesus easily sidesteps their trap by giving a very straightforward answer to their tricky question, and the Pharisees and Herodians also retreat. Round two to Jesus. But the great debate's not over. There are still other contenders waiting in the wings, and now round three begins. Look at verse 23 of chapter 22. The same day, Sadducees came to him. Now, we said last week that in first century Judaism, there was a wide diversity of beliefs. And these beliefs were represented in a number of factions. You might think of them like denominations or political parties. Because these parties were battling to become the dominant expression of Judaism. Now, last week we looked at the Pharisees. Today we're going to see the Pharisees' arch enemies, the Sadducees. Who were the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were the party of the Jewish aristocracy. They were the party of the priesthood. They were the rich, the powerful. They controlled the temple. And what did they believe? Well, today we don't know a lot about the Sadducees. Because only about 40 years after the incident we're going to read today, the Sadducee party ceased to exist. Because as Jesus prophesied, the Romans came against Jerusalem and massacred its inhabitants, and destroyed the temple in the year 70. And that was all for the Sadducees. But we do know a little bit about these guys, based on what we find in the Bible and a few other sources outside the Bible. And here's what we can say about the distinctive beliefs of the Sadducees. First, we see in verse 23 of our text that the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. Now, that might surprise us, because there are passages in the Old Testament that speak very clearly about the bodily resurrection of the dead. For instance, Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for the earth will give birth to the dead. Or the passage we read a few minutes ago from Daniel 12, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Passages like these, we might wonder, why would the Sadducees reject the doctrine of resurrection? <coughs> the answer lies in the second distinctive belief held by the Sadducees, which is they did not accept the authority of the whole Old Testament. They accepted the authority only of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the books of Moses. And the Sadducees looked at the Torah and they said, Resurrection's not taught here, so we don't believe in it. In fact, not only did the Sadducees reject resurrection, but their third distinctive belief was that they rejected any notion of a spiritual realm, 
or that humans had spirits, or that there were angels. We see this in Acts 23, verse 8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. The Sadducees rejected all of this. Why? Well, we don't know. Because angels and the ideas that people have spirits, those ideas are found very clearly in the Torah. You'd think if these guys really believed in the books of Moses, they'd believe in angels and spirits, but for some reason, they didn't, and we don't know why. Now, I've given you this extensive introduction to the Sadducees, because we're going to see in a moment all three of these views are going to be really relevant to today's passage. But now, I want you to see the picture. These guys, these arrogant Sadducees, swagger up to Jesus, and they challenge him. Now, they know a little bit about Jesus. They know that Jesus taught about resurrection. Jesus did this back in Matthew 12 when he said, The men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment to offer testimony against the unbelieving people of Jesus' generation. Likewise, Jesus taught his disciples about resurrection. He said in Matthew 28, verse 18, that Jesus will be crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Friends, Jesus believed in resurrection. So here's the Sadducees' big idea. They're going to try to discredit Jesus by discrediting the resurrection. So here's their, here's their plot. They want to make resurrection look ridiculous. And they think if we can make resurrection look ridiculous, then we're going to make Jesus look ridiculous. But how do the Sadducees plan on making resurrection look ridiculous? Well, they're going to quote a part of the Old Testament law, and then they're going to build a hypothetical scenario related to that part of the law, which they think would produce an absurd and ungodly outcome if the doctrine of resurrection was true. And when they put this to Jesus, that's going to force everybody who's watching to say, wow, resurrection is so stupid. And Jesus believes in resurrection? Well, I guess I don't need to listen to him. That's their big plan, okay? And now they begin to execute it by quoting from the Old Testament law. Look at verse 23. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Quotation here is from Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. And this relates to a part of the Old Testament law that scholars call leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was a really important concept in the Old Testament law, and it demonstrated God's loving care for the Israelites. See, back in the book of Joshua, God, God gave all the Israelites a piece of land. They all had property. They all had a way to eat. And God, in His kindness, wanted to continue this for the Israelites. But of course, God knew that over time, some Israelite men would die without children. And that meant that their names would die out, somebody else would get their property, their widows might well starve. And God didn't want that to happen. God cares for the hopeless and the needy. So God required that if an Israelite died without children, and if he had a living brother, that brother must marry his widow. And that brother must father children with the widow, who would continue the name of the dead Israelite who would inherit his property, and who would take care of their mother. This is a really big idea in the Old Testament law. It's all over the book of Ruth, and it's also featured in Genesis 38. And actually, part of what the Sadducees quote here also comes from Genesis 38. And this is an infamous story involving a man named Onan. Onan disobeys God's will in this matter, and for that he is struck dead. So clearly God thought this law was a really big deal. 
And for their part, the Sadducees cherished this principle as well. Because this principle of leveret marriage directly connected to their ideas about personal hope. Now you might say, how can you have personal hope if you don't believe in resurrection? Well, they did have a notion of hope. And I think we see it here in Matthew 22, verse 24, as they speak of raising up offspring for the dead Israelite. The Greek word they use, which is translated raise here, is the standard term for resurrection throughout the New Testament. So here's what the Sadducees are saying. Here's the only kind of raising up we believe in. It's not the raising up of the dead. It's the raising up of children so that our names and our legacies might be perpetuated forever through our families. That was their notion of hope. And I think a lot of people in our world have the same hope today. Yeah, I'm going to die. But you know, if I make enough money, boy, I can really set my heirs up well. If I have enough influence, maybe they'll put my name on a building that will stand a century after I'm gone. Maybe I can be kind of immortal by creating a legacy for myself so that my name and my reputation and wealth will be remembered. That's the hope many people in our world have today. That was the hope the Sadducees had too. And so this passage about lover and marriage and about maintaining a name and property and legacy was important to them. And now they use this principle to attack resurrection and the Lord Jesus. And here's their attack. Look at verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. Now, the Sadducees present this as a true story. Almost certainly they're lying because the details of this story are so outlandish. And I would guess that they have used this story before because they were always debating the Pharisees about resurrection. This is probably one of their favorite gotcha moments, right? And now they think, here's our chance. Let's use it on Jesus. So here's the situation. There's this family with seven brothers. One gets married. Verse 28 tells us the marriage was consummated. It's a valid marriage. But no children are produced, and the husband dies. Because of leveret marriage, the husband's brother marries the widow. The marriage is consummated. It's a valid marriage. But again, no children are produced. Husband number two dies. Now, brother three marries her, and the same thing happens. And brother four, and five, and six, and seven. And the wife outlives them all, and eventually she dies. Now, here's the punchline. The Sadducees ask, look at verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? There were seven valid marriages. If the resurrection is true, they ask, when all these folks rise to eternal life, what's the family dynamic going to be? All seven brothers had the same valid marital relationship to this one wife in life. Which one's going to get her? And if you can't figure it out, what was to happen? Is this one woman going to wind up with seven husbands forever? Now, in our wicked world today, people are all kinds of open to polyamory. And that's not a new thing. That was a thing back in ancient Israel when there was sinful polygamy practiced. But, you know, even back then, what was never practiced was polyandry, one wife with several husbands. That would have been unthinkable to the ancient Jews. That would have been seen as totally ungodly. But the Sadducees say, hey, if resurrection can produce ungodly outcomes like that, is that really what God's going to do? Come on, God would never do something like that. Resurrection must be false. That's their idea. 
And after they put this to Jesus, you can just imagine these guys having a good chuckle among themselves, right? Oh, we're so smart. That was so good. You got that backwoods Galilean preacher, didn't you? But Jesus isn't stumped. Instead, he responds immediately. And his response is devastating because it cuts right to the heart of who the Sadducees were. Look at verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Boy, it's a cute little story. But the Sadducees are totally in error because resurrection's still true. And the Sadducees fail to recognize it for two reasons. Because they're ignorant about the scriptures and they're ignorant about the power of God. See, what stands behind the Sadducees' unbelief is not intellectual sophistication. It's not spiritual depth. Rather, the issue is they didn't have a relationship with God. Years later, Paul would write to the Corinthians. Some of the Corinthians uh, folks in the Corinthian church, they didn't believe in resurrection either. Here's what Paul said to them. Here's the problem. Some have no knowledge of God, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. That's the issue. And one of the clearest indications that the Sadducees didn't really know God is they've got this arrogant attitude scoffing about things that are holy. That's their whole approach here, right? Let's twist the scriptures and have a good laugh. Let's laugh at resurrection. Let's laugh at Jesus. It's grotesque. People elevating themselves over God, imagining themselves to be wise, they became fools, didn't they? Treating the things of God as comical, it's obscene. Proverbs 21 says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. And you know, scoffing isn't just something in the distant past. Because 2 Peter 3 says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And that's what we see today, right? Our world mocks God. Blasphemy is commonplace in entertainment, in conversation. God's word is mocked. God's people are treated as ignorant, backwards-thinking fools. People quote passages that they don't understand, like the Old Testament dietary law, and then they say, hey, look how dumb this is. So if the dietary law is dumb, why should I follow anything else the Bible says, like that stuff about sexuality and marriage? And you know, friends, this doesn't just happen in the world. Sometimes it happens in professing churches. About four years ago, a good friend of mine He's a pastor. He was invited to another church to give a talk about the doctrine of inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without error. And when he showed up, he discovered he had been sandbagged because that church said to him, hey, we believe in the authority of the Bible and we want you to come help us learn. But when he showed up, he found out that church had no interest in the Bible. Everybody there wanted to attack him and ridicule him and have a good time at his expense. Thankfully, my friend was well enough versed in the scriptures to give a spirited defense. That happened in a church. Friends, we live in an age of scoffing. People want to pretend to be sophisticated, and they think they can look like intellectuals by laughing at God. But like the Sadducees, they're ignorant of God's word. Because God's word tells us rebellious man may laugh at God, but in the end it's God who's going to be laughing at them for their foolish rebellion. Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The father scoffs at the scoffers, and he will avenge through his king Jesus. 
Friend, today, if you make a habit of laughing at the things of God, if that makes you feel exalted to laugh at what is holy, I want you to be warned. You're not as wise as you think you are. In fact, you're a fool. And you are in grave danger because God's power and wrath are real. Proverbs 19.29 says, Condemnation is ready for scoffers. Maybe today you say, well, I know Jesus and all of this scoffing disgusts me. My soul is wearied by it. I want you to know today, God will answer the prayer of Psalm 74, 22. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the, the foolish scoff your name all day. There will be justice, and it will be fearsome. Proverbs 24, 9 says, The scoffer is an abomination to mankind. But I want to urge you younger folks, especially you younger professionals who may want to look sophisticated to maintain your position in the workplace. Do not listen to scoffers. Do not fall in with scoffers. Do not follow their example of scoffing. It is not innocent fun that God smirks at. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, in the, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That song goes on to say the end of the wicked, the end of the scoffer, is he will not withstand judgment. He will perish. Friends, do not be wise in your own eyes like the Sadducees were. Wisdom is to be found in God's word alone. And don't take your cues about life from scoffers. Do not become a scoffer. All right, so Jesus is now exposing the folly of these scoffing Sadducees. And he says their attitude about the resurrection shows their ignorance of God's power and God's word. And now he's going to show us how that's the case. Look at verse 30. You'll notice verse 30 begins with the word for. Anytime you find this word in the New Testament, it's always introducing an explanation of what came before it. So what Jesus says now explains why it is that the Sadducees' argument shows that they have an ignorance of God's word and God's power. And Jesus begins by showing how they have an ignorance of God's power. And this now is our second point. We should believe in the resurrection because of the power of God. The Bible is clear. God is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God's omnipotence, his infinite power, is most clearly seen in creation. God made everything by his will and his word. That's power, right? That's amazing power. God's got that power. And friends, if God can create the universe out of nothing, if God can create life where there was no life, then the bodily resurrection of the dead is not impossible. Because God, who spoke all things into being out of nothingness, can certainly reconstitute our bodies after they've decayed. God, who breathed life into the first body, can certainly breathe life again into our reconstituted bodies. Jesus, who rose from the dead in a glorified resurrection body, is a pattern for us, right? God can certainly give us life in resurrection bodies, too. See, friends, resurrection is an impossibility only if there is no God or if God has a limitation on his power. But Romans 1.20 says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Creation testifies to us that God's 
real and that his power is boundless. And so, friends, resurrection is possible. But the Sadducees didn't think it was, and that exposes their low view of God. In their hearts, they really didn't think God was there, or they really didn't think God could do anything. And Jesus says, that shows you don't know his power. And I think this low view of God and his power is seen in this little story that they've put to Jesus about these seven brothers and this one wife. Because that story only makes the point they think it makes if resurrection existence and eternal life simply consists of bringing the dead back to life and plopping them right back in this world as it currently exists. Back into a situation where there's marriage and where the law of leveret marriage applies. But the Sadducees didn't have any imagination. They can't imagine that God might choose to do something greater than simply continue the world as we know it. See, friends, the Sadducees have not rightly understood what resurrection entails. Because our hope, if we're in Christ, is not simply that we get reanimated bodies and we get plopped right back into this world with all of its current customs and cares. No. Our hope is in a new order, a new creation, that the God who once demonstrated his limitless power by creating will do it again. And Jesus now makes this point by saying that, in fact, resurrection existence is not just a continuation of life as we know it. No, resurrection existence contains some important differences from this world. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now let's first talk about what this verse says, and then we can talk about what it, how, how it applies. This is one of the few verses in the Bible that gives us any insight into what resurrection life will be like. And it gives us that insight first by way of contrast. In Jesus' day, men sought marriage and women wound up in marriages through arrangements set up by their family. Jesus says, in eternity, that will no longer be the case. Resurrected people will not be characterized by marriage. Therefore, the Sadducees' little story has no application because it's built on a false premise. It assumes that resurrection existence is the same as this world, that marriage will continue to happen, when in fact it won't. Now, verse 30 continues by giving us more insight into resurrection existence, this time by way of comparison. As Jesus says, resurrected believers will enjoy an existence comparable to the existence of the angels. Now, don't miss this. Of course, the Sadducees didn't just not believe in resurrection. They also didn't believe in angels either. So Jesus here is again saying, hey, guys, your theology is all messed up. But Jesus says, no, there are angels in the spiritual realm, and their existence is similar to what resurrected believers will one day enjoy. Please notice that Jesus does not say that resurrected believers will become angels. He says our lives will be like the lives of the angels. Now, we don't know much about how the angels in heaven live, but Jesus seems to be telling us here that angels do not live in marital unions. And so in the same way, resurrected believers won't either. Now, I've got to tell you, over the years, I think I've been asked more questions about this verse than I have about any other. And usually I'm asked about this verse by people who are in very happy marriages who are very upset by what Jesus says here. Because they love their spouses and they love their marriages and they feel like this verse is telling them that resurrection existence is going to be deficient in some way. Because it's going to be characterized by losing something precious to them. 
that somehow the new creation will be a diminishment of the world we currently live in because it won't have the marital state. Friends, I want you to know the new creation will be in no way inferior to the world that we presently live in. To think otherwise would be to make the same mistake the Sadducees made. It would be to deny the power of God. Because the God who can create and recreate, the God who gives life and raises the dead, the God who invented marriage in this world is able to invent a far better new world. And it may not have marriage, but we can trust in the goodness and power of God that whatever the new world looks like, it will be a far happier and better place than this one, even without marriage. Now, I know some of you have struggled with this idea because you've told me so. You think that without your marriage, heaven just won't be heaven. If that's you, I want to warn you this morning in two ways. First, I want to warn you that your thinking may evidence an unhealthy emphasis on your marriage and family. Marriage and family are very good gifts from God. Hebrews tells us we must hold marriage in high regard. But friends, marriage is not ultimate. That's one reason I often try to emphasize what 1 Corinthians 7 says about singleness when we talk about marriage here. Singleness is a blessed state just as marriage is. And I, and I think we have to emphasize this because often in American evangelicalism, I think we've missed what the Bible actually says about these things because we've become kind of culture warriors for the family. But friends, I want you to know that while we need to love marriage and while we need to love families, marriage is not the chief end of man. And if in our minds heaven wouldn't be heaven without us having our marriages there, we have appraised our marriages too highly. Because in the, in the end, what makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there, not our marriage. Right? It's not about, I want to be able to continue certain aspects of my life that I love so much in heaven, and that's what I'm looking forward to. No, friends. What is ultimate about heaven is that God is there and that we will know him and be known by him in ever-increasing ways. And friends, if we value our marriage even above our communion with God, we're guilty of idolatry. But second, I want to really warn you that a craving for eternal marriage may expose you to great spiritual danger. Because the Mormon church has for years recruited Christians into its false religion by selling them the idea that you can be married forever in heaven. And an incorrect and unbelieving response to this verse has led many people into that false religion with a false notion of God and a false notion of Christ and a false notion of salvation and the condemnation that comes with all of those false things. Friends, do not despair because of this verse. Do not be tempted to Mormonism because of this verse. Instead, if you say, I have such a happy marriage, this is what I want you to realize. As good and blessed as your marriage is, God's plan for the new creation and your eternal state is even better. And God has the power to create something even far better than the best and happiest marriage. And to help us think about how great the new creation is, let me just point out a few realities that we see in Revelation 21 and 22 about the new creation. Revelation 21, 2 says this, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, marriage isn't ultimate. Marriage is a picture of a greater relationship between Christ and his church. And when the glorious and greater union of Christ and his church becomes a visible reality, we won't need the old picture anymore. 
Revelation 21.3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is, is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will dwell with them as their God. People dwell in the joy of God and Christ in their presence forever. Revelation 21 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Are you tired of temptation? Are you tired of sin? Do you fear death? Friends, we will inhabit glorified bodies impervious to pain, illness, suffering, and death. This ruined world will one day be gone because Christ will make all things new and there will be no more sadness there. Revelation 22.1 says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, that's a new, that's a, the new creation is a real place. It's filled with sensory realities like our world is, but it will be infinitely better. It will be filled with endless delight, beautiful scenery, luscious food, as the garden was at the beginning. But this is the new and better garden. No more tree of testing, only the tree of life. And we will enjoy fellowship unbroken with our Savior and all the believers throughout the ages in resplendent glory, gazing upon the unveiled face of God, reigning with Jesus forever. Friends, if you know Christ today, this is your hope. This is your destiny. This will be your reality. And if you ever doubt that, remember the limitless power of God. He can do this, and he has sworn that he will. But we come now to our last point, which is that we should believe in resurrection because of the word of God. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection because they think the Torah doesn't teach it, and that's all they care about. But Jesus says that view is ignorant of God's word. What's he mean? Well, we might expect that Jesus would debate them on which books should be part of the canon, which books are authoritative scripture, that they should listen to Isaiah and Daniel when they speak about resurrection. In fact, we know Jesus viewed these other books as authoritative. In Luke 4, when Jesus preached in the synagogue, he chose to preach Isaiah 61. Throughout Matthew's gospel, when he speaks about himself, he calls himself the Son of Man, a significant term from Daniel 7. And Jesus believed in the same Old Testament that we have today and viewed it as authoritative. So why doesn't Jesus just make his entire scriptural argument about how the Sadducees have incorrectly rejected too many books of the Old Testament? Well, maybe Jesus remembers the Proverbs say it's not wise to rebuke a scoffer because they won't listen. But I think that more than that, Jesus wants to show here how integral the doctrine of resurrection is to the truth about God. Resurrection isn't some doctrine somebody made up centuries after Moses and tacked it onto the faith. A resurrection can be proven even in the earliest parts of the Bible. And now Jesus makes a biblical argument about resurrection. 
not by quoting one of those more well-known passages about the subject from Isaiah or Daniel. Rather, Jesus quotes a passage that at first might look like it has nothing to say about resurrection, which Jesus will demonstrate actually does. Look at verse 31. He says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is a quotation from Exodus 3, one of the most important moments in the Bible. As God reveals himself to Moses for the first time, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, when we look at this at first, we might think, well, this is just God identifying himself by saying, you know, I, was, I used to be the God of those patriarchs from Genesis. That's how the Sadducees read this verse. But Jesus sees a nuance in this verse that is incredibly profound. And he explains it like this in verse 32. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. See, if God's point to Moses was simply, I was associated with the patriarchs once, he could have said to Moses, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But God doesn't say that. Instead, God uses a present tense verb. He says, I am their God. That shows that God is still their God, even though they seem to have been long dead. But despite that, God seems to think that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist. Unlike what many people think today, unlike what the Sadducees thought, death is not the end. See, we're not just made of matter. We do have a spirit that endures after death. In fact, Luke expands on this point, recording that Jesus went on here to say, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. See, human life is never finally snuffed out. When God grants a person life, they will live forever. Uh, though dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive in God's reckoning. Just as our believing family and friends who have gone on before us are still alive, in a spiritual sense, they live on in the presence of Christ. Friends, God makes that so. Death is not the end of us. It seems to be, but God knows that it isn't. Now, I'm going to say more about this in just a minute. But for those of us who know Christ, this is great news. And for those of us who don't know Christ, this is terrible news. But you might say, fine, everybody will exist in some spiritual form after life. That's different than saying God's going to reconstitute their bodies and give them a glorious embodied resurrection life. How does Jesus' statement here connect to the doctrine of bodily resurrection? Well, this statement certainly proves that the patriarchs live on as spirits, but I think it does more than that. I think it implies bodily resurrection. Because what was it that God declared good at creation? Embodied human life. The Lord, Genesis 2 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Human life is a soul-body unity. Disembodied spiritual existence was not God's design for human life. This is not what God declared to be good at creation. So if we believe that God's going to set all things right at the end, we can infer that ultimately the dead must be re-embodied. And I think that's what the rest of the Old Testament testifies to clearly as well. And so Jesus' argument here proves that the Torah teaches life continues after death, and therefore bodily resurrection can be inferred. So, indeed, the Sadducees don't know God's word as well as they think they do, because they've missed all of this in this important verse. Now, after making this devastating argument, we read this, verse 33. 
And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The bystanders were shocked at the way that Jesus devastates the Sadducees' theology by pulling out the verbal tense of one word from the Old Testament. It is an incredible observation of the biblical text. We see here Jesus' profound teaching and the greatness of his wisdom and insight. And you know now the Sadducees aren't laughing anymore. The next verse tells us they were silenced by what Jesus says here. They too have taken their best shot at Jesus and struck out. And seeing this, Luke records at the end of this incident, Luke 20, verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. The scribes were allies of the Pharisees. They were Jesus' enemies throughout this whole book. But when they see Jesus take it to their favorite enemies, the Sadducees, they say, Hey, Jesus, for once we're on your team. But what should we take from all of this? I want you to see just two applications here. First, and this is really important for our evangelism, Jesus meets the Sadducees where they are. As he makes his biblical argument, he doesn't start with, hey guys, you're looking at the wrong books and let's do this big intellectual exercise. He is content to appeal to them on their terms. They only want to look at the Torah. He's only going to look at the Torah. He doesn't quote verses they won't accept. He deals with them where they are. We see the same thing in the book of Acts. D.A. Carson has pointed out in Acts 13, when Paul preaches to the Jews in the synagogue, boy, his sermon is filled with scripture. But in Acts 17, when he goes to Mars Hill and deals with the philosophers of Athens, he doesn't quote the scripture once. because They didn't know the Old Testament, and they wouldn't have cared. Instead, he appeals to them on the basis of creation and their own way of thinking. He quotes their philosophers and talks to them about their idolatry and uses all of that to ultimately point them to Christ. Friends, I think there is great value in us tailoring our approach to the people that we want to win over with specificity. If we're talking to somebody who's Jewish or has a church background or confesses that they hold the scriptures in high regard, by all means, let us use the scriptures. But you know, we live in an age of massive biblical illiteracy. Few people accept the Bible today and even fewer know what it says. So instead of just throwing Bible quotes at people and then getting frustrated when they don't seem to respond, I think it's good for us to get to know the people that we want to evangelize. And like Jesus and Paul do, let's meet them where they are. Let's use the kinds of ideas and arguments that they seem to be interested in to point them to Jesus. This approach will take more work and patience, but if we see it modeled by Christ, I think it's something that we should listen to. But secondly, friends, I want you to know you can trust the resurrection of the dead will happen because of the Word of God. The Old Testament tells us that, and even more than that, on this side of the cross, we have the witness of the New Testament. And the most powerful evidence for the truth of the resurrection comes from the resurrection of Jesus himself. You know, we believe in resurrection not just because there was an empty tomb. But after Jesus died, he was seen alive again on many occasions. 1 Corinthians 15 lists something like 10 different occasions Jesus was seen. By people that believed in him and disbelieved in him alike. Including at one point, he was seen by 500 people at once. He was seen by his brother James, who had been a scoffer. But after he saw the risen Christ, he became a leader of the early church. He, appealed to, he appeared to Paul, who had been a persecutor. After Paul saw the risen Christ, his life changed and he became an apostle. And friends, these appearances of Christ were so real that decades later, when the witnesses were persecuted and tortured and killed because they said Jesus is risen, you know what? They didn't recant their testimony because they knew it was true. 
Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is real. And 1 Corinthians 15, 12 says, If Christ is proclaimed as, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Friends, if you believe Jesus is raised, you've got to believe in a general resurrection as well, Paul says. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, As by a man came death, also by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Today, friends, if you know Jesus in a saving way, if you have turned from your life of sin and trusted Jesus as God and man who died for your sins and rose again, you don't have a vague, shadowy hope. You don't have a hope in pie in the sky someday. You have a certain promise when you face the prospect of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be raised as Jesus was raised, in a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 says, This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. We will be raised as he was raised, in the same pattern. And we will live forever, in unending bliss with Christ and the saints. And by saints, I mean all believers. I also want to urge you today to meditate on this hope. 1 John 3, 3 says, we don't know what will be. But when we see him, we'll be like him, because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who, who uh, has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. If you're battling temptation and sin and all that kind of stuff, meditate on the idea of resurrection existence in the presence of Christ. That is a hope that will draw us to the holiness that we need, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But today, friend, if you do not know Christ, I warn you solemnly, this world has lied to you. Death is not simply fading to black. Because as Jesus says, all live to God. God will keep us all alive somewhere. And in the end, there will be a resurrection, not only of those who belong to God unto eternal life, there will also be a resurrection of those who do not know God unto eternal death, unto eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. As the Bible warns us in Revelation 14, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night the tragedy of the ages. Friend, I beg you, turn to Christ. Eternal condemnation is real, but eternal life is real too. Repent and believe the gospel and live. Friends, Jesus is triumphant. He is God, not death. And he will give his people eternal life. So we can say with the poet John Donne, death be not proud. Though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die.